0: Good morning to each of you and greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus this morning. There's a lot of emphasis placed in the scriptures and even in in Christian preaching and proclamation on the suffering and death of Christ for man's sin, for the shed blood of Calvary, how our how Jesus met the need of our hearts atoned for for us and provided a way of forgiveness for us. <clears throat> that is a that is a red thread throughout the entire scriptures and of course it culminates in Christ. It's very important. A very, very important key doctrine of the Christian faith. Not just something we believe but every true child of God has experienced what that's about. Must have experienced what that's about. There is, however, something that stands, I don't know, I guess, could you say next parallel or right along with it? If we would just go to the point of Christ's suffering and death for man's sin, the shedding of blood, it would leave the whole sacrificial system of the Bible basically where it left the Old Testament Saint, True, Christ did it once for all. It doesn't have to be done again. In the Old Testament, blood needed to be shed repeatedly to cover sin. What I'm saying, it, if, if we only have the suffering and death of Christ in the Scripture it would leave us somewhere at that unknown place or place of doubting, I guess we could say, place of question as to where the Old Testament saint stood once he had made his, all he had done to make his sacrifice and his offering to God. The New Testament gives us something beyond. I'm not saying more important but something beyond the suffering and death and the shed shed blood, the atonement of Christ. The one central thing, the one central theme of the preaching in the book of Acts is that Jesus lives. That that sacrifice as complete as it is That there is is something more. There is something beyond which the Old Testament saint had never experienced. And that is that there is a living Savior. The Lamb arose. The Lamb isn't dead anymore. It lives. And you read through the sermons in the book of Acts and that seems to be a key central point. Definitely it was a more of a new thought. It was more of a new teaching. It was more of a new doctrine. The Old Testament alluded to it, but the New Testament teaches it as a reality that happened because Christ rose from the dead. It proved that Christ was God. It proved, it showed that salvation is an accomplished fact. It's not just something that we hope is taken care of. It's done. I should say, a, a, poor, a good portion of salvation is an accomplished fact. It showed that God approved of what Jesus did. And that that salvation that, that Christ provided on the cross met the requirements of a holy God. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that we will rise. It gives power for Christian living. Yes, we we there is power in the blood. There is. But there's we receive power through the resurrected Christ and his indwelling holy spirit in our lives to live victoriously. The resurrection prepares the way for Christ's return. And the resurrection is a final triumph over the last enemy, which is death. The final enemy that of, that, of the consequences of sin. And Jesus conquered that one as well. Several Sundays ago, we started looking a little bit at First Peter chapter 1. And I'd like to continue from there. We looked at being elected as saints. We've been elected according to God's foreknowledge. We've been elected through the being set apart by the Holy Spirit. And we've been elected through the obedience. And the sprinkling of the blood of Christ unto obedience and sprinkling of a cleansing of the blood of Christ. And Paul gives greetings to the church. In the, the, those that are elected. I'd like to begin reading verses 3 through 5 of First, first Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and with a doxology, with a, with a song of praise. Praise be to God. And that word blessed means to speak well of. And he says, praise be the God and the Father of Jesus Christ. And it and focuses on, the recognizes the humanity of Christ as it relates to God as the Father. He says, blessed be God. Praise be to God. which according to his abundant mercy it has been through God's mercy that atonement has been made God was compelled he was impelled his his mercy drove him to provide a way God's heart had the mercy in it that just that just that just churned and and something must be done for these for this for this sinful race and God's mercy it, it was so great mercy is when when we don't get what we deserve when God does not put to get when someone or in this case God does not put against us something that we actually deserve He says, blessed be God, which with his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, has claimed us, has renewed us, has made us part of the divine nature through the Holy Spirit. We become children of God and it's done through his mercy. We cannot lay any claim because of Any heritage we have, we cannot lay any claim to it because we live in a certain time frame, time element, or among a certain culture of people, or because uh, we come of a certain religious background, uh, none of that. We only can lay claim on God's mercy and His grace that has claimed us. That has elected us, that has chosen us, that has renewed us, has begotten us, has received to himself us again. See, at one time, everybody belonged to the Lord. But through the fall of man, we, we all fell into Satan's camp. And we were, we were, we were enslaved to, his, to him and to his kingdom. But through to God's mercy a way has been made that we can that we can be that God can again beget us. He can again receive us. We can again be his. Has begotten us again to a lively hope. Not just living. <laughs> the congregation of Manitoba that we are associated with is, is called living hope. You know, there's a lot of things that are living that aren't lively. A lot of things are living that are just somehow rather mediocre and and just, you know, they exist. But Peter is saying, God has begotten us, He has claimed us, He has made us new through the work of the Holy Spirit to a Lively hope. Now, see, when I look at my little granddaughter there, then I think of a, a, a lively hope. <laughs> Most of the time. You know, that's, there's a difference between living and lively. You're, we're not just supposed to have a living hope. You can't have a lively hope if you don't have a living one. But you can have a living one without having a lively one. And a lively hope is one that is vibrant, that is expectant, and and that's that that is optimistic. There's a hopefulness. I'm not saying that it just splashes out all over the place, and 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 just. Uh, uh, some of us are a little more calm and reserved than a few others are. We know that, and so there's personality that's involved in this. But personality aside, every Christian should be having a lively. A hope that is that is vibrant, a hope that is that is real, a hope that is that is somehow just bubbling and bursting within one's self, that is active and energetic. Now we must remember, Paul, Peter is writing this letter to believers that are going through very difficult trials he's not writing it this to a church that's just rather just living in under peaceful circumstances at all he's writing this to a church that's in that's under stress from outside there's there's worldly pressure there's uh, persecution that's, that's pressuring them, that's pushing them, pushing in on them, and making things very, very difficult, giving them a very hard time. And as we already talked in Sunday school, you know, that, 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 that has a refining effect. It does. But even in the midst of that, we are to have a lively hope. I know I have talked about my brethren... They live up in in uh, uh, Pastor Fort Saint John in northern British Columbia, and uh, I find something interesting. They, they, there's a book that uh, that was written about them when this these, when this group was still living in in Germany. It was written by the the Brother Andrew Mission Organization. The book is not that easy to find. I've been able to find some copies on Amazon. Uh, it's called Siberian Miracle. And it tells a story of these people. And when they were in, in the Soviet Union under, under communism, they were put under a lot of pressure. And finally, and of course the, the communist authorities really try to squeeze things on them they were supposed to be quiet they could even if if they would have church only adults nobody under 18 uh, was to be present they could not evangelize they could not they were just supposed to just quietly hush hush live their faith and just don't cause any ripples don't don't make any big moves and these people and in fact, they had people within their group that says, "No, no, 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 just let us live our faith. Let us just be quiet. That way, we don't have trouble. Just, just don't, don't, don't make any waves. You know, just, just keep things going S- smooth is, is the is the is the right approach. But there were brethren among them that says, "No, this is not scriptural. This is not right. This is not spiritual." God asks us to be bold even in the midst of trial and persecution and regardless of the consequences that happen from outside we need to we need to demonstrate our faith live our faith proclaim the truth and so they 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 made a commitment to to be open with with the gospel in evangelism with their neighbors and bringing their children to assembly and all these kinds of things. And uh, it definitely caused them a whole lot of heartache and grief. It did. Uh, financial and deprivation, imprisonments, uh, all kinds of harassment and pressure and, and trouble. They, they had all those. But it seemed that the more that's got heaped on them, the, the, the more the more they, they could evangelize. The, the freer it made them. And there was a lively hope there. There was an optimism there. And they were bold for, not arrogant, but they were bold for the Lord. And it, it was a drawing factor uh, for, for other people who, who became believers. You know, you look at the news today, the newspaper, it doesn't take much and you walk away from there, and you—that no, was nothing interesting. There was nothing, nothing, hardly worth reading. And what was there was rather basically depressing, and, and just gets you all stewed up about either this issue or that problem or that conflict, or you know, and and you can really get worked up about things. And but Peter writes to these believers, and he says even with all this, let's remember. God's children have a lively hope. We have an optimism. As an object of God's care and His love, the Christians should look for the, the best that's to come. And even on the bright side of the present. Yes. If when I in the assemblies of, that these these people up there in Northern B.C. have pretty every church house that I've been, they have a they have a a big sign, a big poster and and it says it will not be it will not always be as it is now. Now you can take that you can take that and say yeah it's going to get worse. But we must remember at the final end it will not always be as it is now. If anybody has a hope, if anybody has a bright future, it's a child of God. And that should do something to us. That should do something to our life. That, that perspective, that vision, that, up to, that, that should do something to my step, that should do something to my attitude, that should do something to my outlook, that should do something to my enthusiasm, that should do something to me. Because it will not always be as it is now. It will not be that way. And Peter writes and he says he's begotten us unto a lively hope. And as we hope in that finished work of Christ a work that is done that part is done. And we can rest in that. We don't need to look back and like the Old Testament saint would look back and says, now was that blood adequate? Did it, did it meet the grade? Is it, is it sufficient? Is it, is it enough? Or should I make another sacrifice? I remember an old brother. One of the first years that I taught school in Manitoba we had a there was an elderly minister there. Some, he, wasn't, he was somewhat retired, He's, but he still had some children in school. He wasn't that old, but he was, not a, he was not a healthy man anymore. Had moved into that community. Very godly man, a God-fearing man. But he became quite ill and with heart conditions and so on. His wife, his widow, told us after he had passed away, uh, during the last hours of his life he had and he was a man that that had 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 difficulty with depression and, and emotional struggles and on his deathbed his condition was such a family could not be in the hospital room all the time it was rather just they could go in for periods of time and then had to leave again and one of the last times that he was in there he expressed to his wife he says that is it if I, if I go, is if I leave, will I make it? Will I make it? Is it adequate? Is it and his wife was struggling with the whole thing because she knew her husband was dying and she would have wanted him to stay, which she knew would likely not happen, and yet he was leaving this this world with, with, with such such uncertainty. That makes things much worse. And Finally, she said, she quoted a German little uh, poem, a little phrase. It's in one of our German hymn books. Um, it has been translated to English, but she quoted it in German. Um, Jesus' blood and righteousness, that is my dress, that is my cloak, that is my... Um, my my cloak of honor. And she quoted that to him. See, because she had she she didn't know what more to say to this to her husband. And somehow he grabbed a hold of that. It is what Jesus did. It's what Christ did, and I need to just I need to bank on that. It's the only thing I can bank on. That is adequate. It is adequate. And I need to just trust that that, that it is adequate. It will, it will meet the conditions. If I meet the conditions of that, that's all. It is the blood of Jesus Christ who will do it. This resurrection this salvation begotten us again by the lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I understand that that word Jesus Christ from the dead that that means that Jesus Christ was resurrected out from among the dead. He was in the same condition as all the other dead. Physically. He was with the dead he was resurrected from out among them. You can take his picture a little bit as if, as if you've had all these people that had died, and God the Father stepped in there, plucked in there, and took Jesus Christ, and picked him up out of them. He says, "You will be the first. You will be the firstborn of the resurrection." And because Jesus lives, we can live, so, live also, and so the Christian can can focus on his future. I know, sometimes God's people are accused, oh, you just have this pie in the sky kind of an idea. At least we have something. (laughs) A lot of people have no future to look forward to whatsoever. Just this life, eat, drink and be merry and whatever that is, and after that, blank. I don't know empty I'm not sure I hope there's something but the child of god has something that is more sure than what we have today It's more real than what we have today because what we have today is only temporary Our future is eternal I'd like to talk a little bit to the children You know Jesus is making a new home for all the people that love Him. Now, I don't know if you've ever moved to a new house. I have moved from one house to another house. I've never moved to a new house, a brand new house. I haven't done that. But, you know, Jesus is making a new house in heaven. A big place. Jesus said he did. He's going there. He's making a very, very, very big house. Not only is it very big, but it is the most beautiful place that you could ever think of. Nobody can build such a nice house here. Nobody can do it. Nobody can build a house that is going to be so wonderful is this house. And there's something interesting about this new house. Nobody will ever cry in that house. That's right. Hmm. Sometimes children cry, right? You get hurt. You don't feel good. You're hungry. You're tired. Somebody says something, somebody does something, and we cry. Sometimes big people cry because of something that has happened. But this house, you'll always be happy. Always. It'll always be wonderful. there. You'll never get tired, so you don't have to take a nap. I don't know what some of the rest of us who like to take naps, what we're going to do. <laughs> I guess we won't get tired. You'll never be hungry. It'll always be clean and you don't have to vacuum and you don't have to clean up. You don't have to put things in the garbage because there's no need for that. It's always going to be pretty. There are going to be no weeds in the garden. Not, no dust. Nothing like that. There's going to be a lot of angels and there's going to be a lot of singing. Jesus will be there and people will be praising Jesus and everything will just be wonderful. And our friend will be there, Jesus. And all your friends who love Jesus will be there. And all the people that have died loving Jesus will be there. And for some of you, your grandpa, your great-grandpa that just wanted to be with the Lord, we believe he's there. That's a wonderful place. I've never been there. I hope to be there. But heaven is such a wonderful house. And we can already look forward to one day moving there. Oh, we think things are nice here. But you know, what we have around here is once we get over there, it's going to be the nicest place you'll ever be able to be and you'll never want to leave it. And In fact, we won't have to. We can always be there and enjoy it. Paul goes on, Peter goes on. After church, you children, come see me. And he says, not only do we have a lively hope, But we have an inheritance. Hmm. Not only do we have an optimism and a hope that things are going to be better, but there's actually some substance to this when it's all done. Now, inheritance is usually something you get. You don't get it because you achieved it. You get it because of a relationship. An inheritance is not something that you usually earn. You get inheritance because of your connection to the person from whom you've inherited. it. Either you're a, in our world situation, either you're a son or daughter, or a grandchild, or a niece or nephew, or a friend of some kind. There's, there's some association, okay? That makes you an inheritor. God's children get inheritance because they are his children. That's our hope. Not just that we're going to get something, but that's the content of our hope. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we, if we are heirs of God, then we're also joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we have suffered with Him, that we also may be glorified together. We received. We will one day receive this inheritance. I know a number of years ago I told the story of a an old writing desk that's in my office that for many years was, was my grandfather bought it when he became a minister and it was already an old desk at that time. And I remember as a boy, Grandpa's desk. And we child, grandchildren loved to sit at, I don't think Grandpa liked it, that we sat at that desk because we'd mess around with all this little drawers and cubby holes and stuff that were in there. And uh, that desk was always pretty special. When Grandpa passed away, sometime later that desk moved to my parents' home because my father was the next minister. He was a son-in-law of that grandpa, but because he was the next minister, was decided he would receive the desk. And so the desk moved to our home. I already was at mid, in, my, in my mid-teens by that time. And so the desk was in my father's study for many years. And he used it. I always had my eye on that desk. I always had my eye on that desk. Until within the last year before my father passed away, he was already retired from, from active preaching, ministry. Mom and Dad were downsizing and moving into a senior's apartment situation. and Dad told us children, he says, I'm not planning on keeping the desk. So does it go back to Mom's family or what should we do with it? And I says, Dad, I'm the next minister. And so now the desk is at our place. I already have some sons and sons in love with vying for this thing. I don't know. I hope they I hope they have a long time, a long wait ahead of them yet. But anyway, we we have an inherent, we have something that we look forward to. Like I said, that desk is at, is at our home now. I know one day I will give it up if the earth stands out. I won't be here to enjoy that forever. I don't think so. But the inheritance is in heaven, nobody else will ever be able to take from us. Nobody. It will never be passed on to somebody else. That's the end of inheritances. That's where it's done. The Bible tells us an inheritance that's incorruptible. There's no outer defilement. There's no moths that are going to chew on this. Mice that are going to get into this thing. It's an inheritance that is enduring. It's an inheritance that is undefiled. It is pure. There's going to be no rust or corruption that's going to make it that's somehow going to be work. Work on its properties. It's imperishable. And it's unfading. It's always going to hold its splendor and beauty. Even with God being the we don't need any other light of the sun or moon, because God is the light. And our inheritance is going to stay just as spectacular and brilliant and splendid all the time. The Bible says that this inheritance is reserved. I understand that that's a perfect participle. That means it's already been put aside. That inheritance is already there. When a person is born again, a relationship is established that that inheritance can be claimed. But you know, you've got to claim your reservation at the end. And how we live our life here is going to determine whether we can t- claim the reservation that's going to be. That word reserved means that it's watched, guarded, protected, set aside. It's like a safety deposit box where God is guarding our inheritance under constant surveillance. And in the last verse 5 it says it's reserved in in heaven for you. And he qualifies who the you are. He says you are the people who are kept the power of God, under the power of God. That word kept is a military term that also means to protect or guard. God doesn't only guard the inheritance but he also guards the recipients that are supposed to receive it. It's a present action that's going on constantly. Just as God has laid aside and is guarding that inheritance, so God is guarding his children. He's watching over them. We are kept by the power of God through faith. I'm going to read what somebody, what I got from somebody else here. It says, God guards the Christian's faith to keep the person inclined toward God. As long as the Christian has faith, he is safe. God exerts the power to keep. The guarding is constant. This protection is God's response to the Christian's faith. And so there is a connection to faith. Faith is not just something that I, that I give to the Lord that says, okay, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, now I have that inheritance. No, but it is this walk of faith, this relationship of faith is going to keep me under God's power is going to guard and keep me and it's also going to keep that inheritance for me at the same time. And that's why you read through the gospels and you read through much of the epistles there's such an emphasis made on faith on trust on confidence on and faith of course involves obedience on that on that constant relationship of growing And trusting in Christ. Paul writes and he says, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded, I am fully, fully persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And that needs to be our testimony. I put my trust in it and I keep I keep that. I'm holding on to that, I'm not letting go. Our faith lays hold of this power, and then this power strengthens our faith so that we can be preserved. Our faith through faith, unto salvation, unto that final salvation. See, salvation is not something that, that just took place on Calvary. Salvation is not just something that when I accept it, now I am saved. Those are key parts. But salvation is also that walk by faith in the Christian life and it culminates and it finishes out with that final salvation of being with the Lord forever. So salvation has somewhat of a progressive element in it. Okay, Definitely it starts with Christ and one's conversion and so on. But that's not the end. That's not where we finish. Unto salvation that's ready to be revealed the last day. Those who exercise faith, those whose faith God is guarding will enjoy the future fulfillment of salvation which is ready to be revealed when Jesus returns. Well, let's remember Peter is writing these, these words to a people that are going through suffering, through trial who may be asking themselves the question is it worth it? Can we hang on? Is it that? Does this make sense to carry on this way? And Peter is saying, it does. Look at what Jesus has provided. Keep on trusting. Don't let go. Keep on having a lively hope in the future. And be joyful and optimistic about it. I think of the words that Moses gave to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 23 when he, uh, when he was giving that final account of how God had been working through with the Hebrew people and bringing them to the edge of the promised land. And Moses is giving his, his, his last address before he goes up to the mountain of dies. And Moses says, He brought us out from thence. He brought us out of Egypt that he might bring us in. God didn't bring us out of sin and out of our spiritual Egypt to just let us wander around in the wilderness and somehow see if we can find a way through this maze. God has brought us out, but with the definite intent that He might bring us in. That is our lively hope. Where it is suitable, let us kneel to pray.